currently a total of about 30 secure drops are publicly running, which is to say that um, these 30 sites have posted their addresses and are actively inviting potential sources to contact them. And of those 30, uh, I believe 12 are news organizations. Welcome to Exalt Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about important topics in digital journalism. Security. How secure are your communications with your sources? How can you protect the identity of your sources in an era of government surveillance? On the phone with you today is Charles Barrett, a PhD student in communications and a fellow at the Tao Center at Columbia University. He's also the author of a new report from the Tao Center about SecureDrop, a way for news organizations to communicate securely with anonymous sources. Welcome, Charles. Thanks. It's great to be here. Okay. Well, first of all, why do organizations, news organizations, and journalists need a system like SecureDrop to protect their communications? Well, for one thing, SecureDrop is less a tool to protect journalists than to protect their sources. So you might think of the case of Edward Snowden. Uh, in the event that a major leak is published, the whistleblower is often significantly more vulnerable than the news organization itself. So SecureDrop is a system designed to make it as safe as possible for a source to contact a journalist if they think they have something important to share. Now, and can you describe how SecureDrop works? Sure. Uh, each SecureDrop, it's a set of three computers running special software. So one of them is a server to run the websites where sources and journalists access SecureDrop and upload files. And those sites are run as hidden services, so you have to use the Tor browser to get to those websites for the sake of security. Um, the second machine basically just monitors the first one. And the third machine is called a secure viewing station. And it's a computer that has never been connected to the internet. So they call that air gapping, that it's never, uh, never been connected to anything. And so it's just a blank machine uh, with exactly the software that you've installed on it on it. So it's as isolated as threat, uh, from threats as possible is a good way of thinking of it. And uh, the journalist brings files to that secure viewing station on a thumb drive if there's something to look at that they found in the inbox from the, uh, from the secure drop. And then they can you know, print the files from a printer that's also never been connected to anything but the air gap machine. And so you keep the endpoint for these files as sanitary as possible in terms, of, in terms of digital hygiene as you're kind of moving through the secure drop system that has been configured for you know, each stage of this process to be as safe uh, in terms of the files and as secure and anonymous in terms of uh, the source's identity as possible. So the two computers that are connected via the Internet are, are both secure, that you're sort of blind, you can't see who the other person is, and because you, you on your end, the journalist, you take the files and the information out on the thumb drive and put it onto another computer, there's no way for that third computer to be tracked pretty much. Yeah, so there's no way for the third computer to be tracked because it, certainly it's 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 known that it's it resides within the newsroom. That much could be deciphered by uh, by anybody trying to uh, trying to compromise the machine. But at each stage along the way, whenever the uh, whenever the source comes to the secure drop site to begin with, and then whenever they upload the files and whenever it's moved through the system. Um, it's sanitized in various ways so that even the journalist could not look into who the source was, even if they wanted to, right? And so all along the way, there are, you know, massive forces of encryption and very sophisticated means of kind of anonymization that, you know, not just through SecureDrop, but through a lot of other really great systems that are maintained on their own, like uh, like the Tor anonymous uh, web browsing system and, and also through encryption systems like PGP. I mean, these are things that are separate from SecureDrop, but which um, SecureDrop relies on heavily because they're the best tools of available to make those points of access and, and the entire point of transit for the files as safe as possible. So how difficult or, or even expensive is it to install this system? So 
the short answer is that it's pretty difficult, but not that expensive. So the developers estimate the total cost between two and three thousand dollars, and that covers a few simple computers, which is to say, just you know, basic computers. They only need to you know to run this one thing. Um, they're much more basic than even your laptop in terms of specifications. That also covers a firewall and a bunch of thumb drives. So um, uh, in the course of installation, you often just throw away these thumb drives after using them once because you you can't know if it's picked up something nasty in whatever machine it just touched. And really, in terms of the, uh, the expense, uh, one organization did the math in a way that I find pretty interesting um, on the cost of the equipment and the labor as well that would go into having and, and checking a secure drop. And they decided that it would be worthwhile if it produced just one story a year, given the usual expense of investigative reporting, which is, of course, very expensive. The secure drop equipment itself is pretty cheap, and um, you know the number of hours per week to kind of see if something shows up would be minimal. And so I thought that was a useful metric for assessing um, whether whether a place should get the system. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations have cut investigative reporting. For, but for the places that still value it, it's the sort of thing that could be factored into that entire department. But then to the question of difficulty, so um, in terms of what you have to do to set the whole thing up, the developers have put together some pretty clear and comprehensive documentation for the installation of the system itself. Um, I actually went through the whole process recently with a colleague, and it took us the better part of two days. That's just the two of us uh, and uh, occasional help from the, the IT administrator from the journalism school, but um, for the sake of getting it uh, on the network in the right way. And so I, I, in general, I'd say that anyone who's worked with Linux servers and the command line before would have the basic level of skill to jump into this, but that's asking a lot of most people, So and, and certainly a lot of most journalists. So overall, I'd say it's wise that most organizations choose to get a guided installation from the developers at the Freedom of the Press Foundation. And at this point, there's a waiting list of about 80 organizations. I have no idea how quickly that's moving, but they will, you know, come on site and uh, help you get it set up. And uh, that's worked for other organizations. So uh, what is it, you know, once the system's in place, what does it uh, require in man hours and, and even training to, to get up to speed on it? Yeah, so... Um, I'm not absolutely sure, having never seen the uh, the training process go through, just how long it takes a journalist to get up to speed with it. Obviously, it would vary from journalist to journalist based upon their tech savvy. But I believe that the general installation process and training process takes just a couple of days whenever the developers come on site. Was there a second part to your question? Yeah, it was uh, once once a person's been trained, uh, you know, how much time is, you know, you, you spoke, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the methods of your report and who you spoke to, but, you know, there seemed to be, a varying degree of approaches to, you know, when when people would check this the system and and how much time that was it would take to actually monitor it. Sure. I think the most common answer to that depends upon the number of staff members who have been trained. And so most often it's three or four staff members, sometimes just one in certain organizations. So if it's three or four, maybe they alternate days and it maybe takes an hour each day. That's a pretty common description of the time commitment. And that is just time spent um, sifting through the inbox, assessing what's there, and um, if necessary, kind of ferrying it across the newsroom to whichever reporter is um, best suited to take it from there. But in cases where it's just one person and they check it once a week, I very often heard that it's just an hourly thing. And so it's, you know, and that includes logging into a, a Tails operating system, a special, very secure operating system, and going to the secure drop site and just, you know, depending upon how much is there, which, you know, in some places varies a lot from time to time. But the most common explanation I heard was, you know, a few times a week, um, an hour each time. So tell me about, about your, your report. What are the methodologies? Who did you talk to? 
So um, the bulk of the report was based on interviews with journalists using SecureDrop, as well as some of the technical administrators overseeing and maintaining the system at these different organizations. But mainly I was speaking to the people who were trained to log in and sift through the inbox and, and look for that promising material. So, I mean, oddly enough, I'd actually originally pitched this project to the Tau Center as a newsroom ethnography. I mean, I, I wanted to embed myself in a few of these organizations and observe journalists making use of this new technology and integrating it into their routines and behaviors and describing what it meant to kind of, you know, have this as a reporting tool. But then, I mean, the funny thing is, as I was making my first overtures to journalists about this project and just asking some general questions about how it's working out for them, just questions like, how much time are you spending on the system? I mean, when I found out that they were checking it maybe once or twice a week and whenever they had a, you know, spare chunk of time, it was only an hour, an hour of that time, I realized that this was the sort of thing that uh, was better suited to in-depth interviews. And so that's what I did. So, I mean, with about a dozen newsrooms running a secure drop right now and a couple of other kind of independent or uh, freelance journalists running their own, yeah, I spent uh, spent a good amount of time just getting people to want to talk to me. And then um, after that, just doing the sorts of interviews in which I was, you know, asking about as much as I could before I got to the point where I might be compromising the security that the system is designed to provide. So about 12 organizations are around that plus um, some uh, journalists. Is that about how many people are, are using it right now? Or Well, currently, a total of about 30 secure drops are publicly running, which is to say that um, these 30 sites have posted their addresses and are actively inviting potential sources to contact them. And of those 30, uh, I believe 12 are news organizations. Those include uh, The Guardian, The Washington Post, ProPublica, The Toronto Globe and Mail, The Intercept, The New Yorker, and a few others. So I spoke to representatives of 10 of those organizations, including the ones I just named. And there are also some personal secure drops run by individual journalists like uh, Bart Gelman, who's one of the reporters who handled the Snowden leaks for the Washington Post, as well as uh, Kevin Polson from Wired, who actually uh, originally conceived of what would become the secure drop project and built the version, first version of it with uh, Aaron Schwartz. So one of the things I noticed when I was reading the report is that the the journalists you were talking to tended to be a little circumspect in certain aspects of what, what they would tell you. How open were they? What were they able to tell you about the the success of SecureDrop? So, in fact, I'm actually I'm actually pleased to say that many journalists were incredibly reluctant to speak to me at all at first, and so and I think this showed that they were approaching the use of SecureDrop with the proper level of caution. But eventually, I was able to get some interviews, and right at the beginning, we set some expectations for what would be covered and what they were comfortable with us discussing in the interviews, and to a degree and to agree that they didn't need to answer any questions that made them uncomfortable in terms of you know their their justifiable obligation justifiable obligation for uh, source protection. So in general, most journalists were really just willing to tell me about their routines for checking the system, how often they took a look at the inbox, and how often it would take them to assess what they found there, as well as the sorts of things that they ended up discarding. So, you know, that ranges from spam to these incredible conspiracy theories to, you know, just things that are very specific to each news organization in terms of what their readership contacts them with. And they were willing to talk about material they discarded, I should mention, just because these were not the sources that they needed to protect. And so if you're, you know, if if your paramount goal with um, being a secure drop operator is that these people are coming to you because they they feel they need that level of security in order to talk to a journalist about what they're bringing to them, then that level of source protection, I think, is is, is really admirably protected. And I, I, I saw that in the course of my interviews when maybe, you know, sometimes a third of the questions I asked were, were rejected outright because they, they appeared to be too sensitive. So what was the, you know, I think we, we sort of touched on this, but what, what's the typical workflow for this? Did somebody check? the uh, the secure drop to see what information is there and then what does he or she do 
So, I mean, it depends on organization size a lot of the time, you know, not unexpectedly. So most organizations, I found most commonly, have, a, you know, three people who are trained to check their secure drop. And um, uh, like I said, they need to log into this special operating system called Tails, and then they use the Tor browser to navigate this, to the site where the journalists log into their secure drop as opposed to the site where the sources log in. And then they just need to look through the messages and see what's there. So um, oftentimes it takes about an hour to look through these to, you know, look at this great variety of messages. But, you know, they develop a sense for it. And then, you know, when something is there, when something promising, something real, legitimate source, something that, you know, um, that, that has news value, they'll respond to that source, uh, let them know what they can expect in terms of a reporter getting back to them, um, distribute that material to the person in the newsroom who's most likely to know what to do with it. So um, um, some stories obviously might be very beat specific. If it's something about the pharmaceutical industry, you know a reporter who can um, who can handle that. And um, sometimes a source might only want to talk with a particular journalist. You know, they might be uh, writing because they think this is a story for so-and-so. But um, whatever the case, I found it useful to think of these point people for the secure drop system as, you know, operators in a sense. So they've been trained up on the system. And um, because they know the newsroom well enough, they know the staff well enough, um, they're able to connect sources with the right reporter. So how do, how do they verify uh the, well, the veracity of the information they were getting and, and even, you know, contact or, or establish some type of rapport with the uh, whistleblower. I can't really speak to um, ongoing relationships with sources. That's not the sort of thing that any reporter would have talked to me about in this context for security reasons. But in terms of verifying the validity of tips and in terms of this question of veracity, I mean, when a journalist gets a tip through SecureDrop, this is not in itself different from any other tip. If it's just a tip that offers the starting point for an investigation, then the journalist is going to carry on that investigation as they would have, right? They'll, they're going to look into ways of verifying the information. They're going to try to figure out if the story is maybe different than the way it was presented by the source, or maybe if it's an even bigger story than that source realized. I mean, just like anything else, you check it before you print it, right? And so, I mean, a lot of the time, uh, there might not be a story in the documents you get. This might just be something that's interesting to the source. And, you know, that's just a matter of news judgment again, right? So maybe the source just got fired and wants to get back at their former employer. Maybe they just have a very narrow interest in a particular subject that is not worth, you know, reporting in a major newspaper. And in fact, I mean, uh, in, in one case, a, a reporter actually told me that someone put some forged documents into his secure drop. And so this reporter actually referred to the source as a sophisticated fabricator in this context and, and said that it took some time to debunk these bogus documents. And you have to, you know, you have to assume that this is somebody who just thought, you know, I'm going to drop these fake documents in and see if this reporter publishes the story without doing the verification. And this, I mean, this highlights the fact that, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's very much, um, you know, the same sort of thing that you would do with any kind of tip you got. On the other hand, you know, perhaps you're dealing with something on a different magnitude uh, in some cases. But anyway, in other words, there's nothing special about what arrives through secure drop, except, except that the source decided to take the precaution of using secure Secure drop. So you still have to be a good, diligent journalist with information that comes from the secure drop, and in some cases, uh, even more so. Yeah, and one of the things that you say in the report, which was kind of interesting, is that um, the secure drop actually more than just like putting information in an envelope and sticking it in the door. I mean, the the person who's submitting something has to go through some steps, you know, more steps than they would would necessarily have to in, in another way of communicating that information. So it almost raises the bar you know, how, how high the, uh, the, um, the whistleblower has to go in order to impart that information. So one would hope, but I guess maybe not, because from what th things, uh, some of the things that you say in the report about, you know, them receiving spam and, and, and uh, the hackers trying to, trying to do things 
um, you know, send malware or something through it that one would hope that this is like raises the barrier for, for somebody just wasting their time. Yeah, no, it, it it can cut a lot of different ways. So yeah, I mean, uh, one reporter, like you said, um, um, said that uh, this might be uh, there might be less noise in the secure drop channel than, for instance, uh, the newsroom phone line. I mean, maybe because it's so easy to call the newsroom and throw a tip over that channel that uh, secure drop makes it more likely that somebody going through the trouble is more serious about it. I mean, luckily um, that bar is is not too high. I mean, by design, right. the developers have tried to make it as easy as possible for sources to come to them, right? And so at this point, I mean, downloading the Tor browser and and using that, you know, very, very secure, albeit frustratingly slow connection to uh, to get over to the news website is manageable for a lot of people. I mean, varieties of technological literacy are, you know, um, are, are very uneven, obviously. Um, and so uh, you can't guarantee that a source is going to find it easy to use this system, but I can't imagine a way that um, it could get easier. You sort of touched on this before, that, that actually there's some news outlets that have a policy about not talking about secure drop. Could you sort of explain why that is? To be specific, I'll just take two organizations, right? So the Toronto Globe and Mail made this policy up front, said that they would never ever reveal when um, a story came from secure drop because um, they would never want to put the source in danger. Right, and if they never reveal that it was secure drop, then um, that uh, that keeps them from unnecessarily introducing some sort of danger, um, whether they are aware of the danger or not. And so there's nothing to gain for them by saying it came from secure drop, except maybe to promote other people using it. But there's a whole lot to lose in terms of their responsibility to the source. On the other hand, uh, The Intercept and ProPublica explicitly told me that they would handle it on a case-by-case basis. And it might be because they have people on staff who are able to uh, assess you know, with, with deep expertise just what the dangers are. Right, and so the Intercept is pretty interesting because they're the only um, the only outlet that has specifically pointed to stories they that they get through Secure Drop. This has happened three times up to this point, and um, the first one came back in November, and they published a story. It was a leak of documents from a company that provides phone services at prisons, and uh, the documents showed that they were recording conversations and even conversations with the prisoner and their attorney, which is a clear violation of attorney-client privilege. Right, and so with these documents. They were able to prove that you know there was there was something something bad going on. It was you know a great investigative story. So um, I asked the uh, you know the Secure Drop administrator at uh, the Intercept, who oddly enough is actually one of the developers of of Secure Drop, uh, Michael Lee. Um, you know what was the what was the decision process behind this? And they said that the you know the whistleblower showed up and handed them these documents and then dropped off the radar. Never showed up at the Secure Drop again. They never knew who the subject was, and so. They determined that there was very little, and there, there might have been other factors under consideration in this decision, but overall, they decided that there was no danger to the source by putting it out there. And they thought, you know, I, I assume that by saying it came from SecureDrop, they would highlight the value of that technology at their organization. As I understand it, they've, they've since, um, uh, since been getting increasingly more success with that system. Okay, so and the idea being that if, you, if, if more people find out that, you, that hey, we, we came up with this, this great story, a whistleblower was protected by using the system that maybe that would encourage other whistleblowers to come forward. 
that's a possibility. I mean, I can't speak for them, but my my understanding from a lot of organizations is not just by talking about the success of the system, but just by posting the link to the secure drop at the bottom of a story that is about um, national security, that is about surveillance, that is about this kind of cluster of issues, that just by posting that link at the bottom of the story and reminding people that it's there, that they do see an uptick. And, you know, and, and they said they have no way of proving whether it's connected to that, but just anecdotally, they saw that just raising the awareness of, of the fact that they have a secure drop system is in itself enough for, for more people to start visiting it. How much of the information they received through SecureDrop did it actually generate stories? No organization was willing to tell me exactly how many stories they got through SecureDrop, exactly how often they come, or the nature of the specific stories, with the exception, of course, of the ones that uh, that were revealed in the story itself. And that's because uh, any information that could narrow down the possibilities of whichever source might have uh, might have leaked the story, whichever stories might have been linked to this, again, could feed into some large-scale analysis of, of whoever the source was. And, and the problem at this point is just how little we know about the possibilities of, of those tools, right? We learned a lot from Edward Snowden, but um, that was at this point, you know, several years ago, and we have no reason to think that sources aren't in entirely new dangers, that it would take an, a new whistleblower for us to discover, right? And so um, for the sake of source protection, you have to be as, as judicious and careful as possible. And so I did not get answers about the exact rate of the stories, but everybody I spoke to was, was quite clear that that the system has been useful, whether as a reporting tool or as the sort of thing that signals that they as an organization value security and value the, you know, the um, privacy, anonymity, and, uh, and, and safety of their sources if somebody wants to come with, to them with, with information. And, and a lot of them, you know, spoken in rather, rather inspired terms about, you know, how this, this protects the role of the press. And so as we protect sources, as we make it possible for, you know, stories to be brought to journalists, we um, we curate the possibilities for the press to serve you know its function in a free society, and I think that a tool like SecureDrop, you know, whether it generates one story a year or whether it, it generates a few at each organization, is the sort of thing that's bound up with those uh, concerns and uh, and those possibilities. One of the things you talk about in in the report, sort of early on, where you sort of talk about the history of its development, as well as you know big incidents like uh, WikiLeaks and and Edward Snowden, and how journalists were beginning to see, seek out ways that they could encrypt their communications to sort of protect sources. So with, with, a, with a technology like this, like SecureDrop, is this something that you think is just going to continue to increase for newsrooms? So, I mean, in the course of this study, I tried to find ways of assessing whether the concern for encryption among journalists had actually increased in the wake of, in the wake of this, you know, the Snowden disclosures, in the wake of WikiLeaks, um, you know, in recent years as the technology has become easier to use and in which, you know, organizations like the Freedom of the Press Foundation have done so much work to, you know, um, to try to improve the, uh, the, the technological possibilities for, for news organizations. And so um, in the midst of that, I mean, I did some analysis of the the number of encryption keys that have been registered to different news organizations. And it looks like that's taken off in a, in a serious way. And one thing that's worth noting is that, you know, an encrypted email, while it hides the contents of a message, would not hide the parties, the times, the, you know, the, uh, the, the whether there were files in transit um, on those emails. And so it's uh, it doesn't do everything SecureDrop does, but as a measure of kind of um, security awareness in newsrooms, it does point to the fact that this is a time of, of, of 
rising awareness among journalists that this is something that uh, they would benefit from paying attention to. So my guess is that we'll see a lot more organizations put in secure drops over the next few years. I mean, uh, like I said, there's a waiting list of about 80 organizations that would like a guided installation of the system. And there's only been a small attrition rate among the newsrooms that have installed a system. And um, and yeah, again, very few have abandoned it. And that only happened when the secure drop was under the supervision of a single journalist and not integrated into the newsroom in these large routines that I described before. And so when the report, that reporter left for another job, the secure drop needed to be shut down um, for a number of reasons, um, foremost among them that, you know, you, you wouldn't want sources dropping things into an, an unmonitored secure drop. So um, so a few of those shut down. But by and large, you see these kind of not only surviving, but, but becoming more integrated as other reporters in the newsroom become aware of the fact that a secure drop is there and maybe they, you know, um, maybe they know that uh, something is coming out of it. But as you see more of these systems installed, suffice to say, I think you'll see the overall number of secure drops continue growing. And the software itself is getting better and more user-friendly. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's around for a long time. I mean, I mean, you never know. But the reality is that as long as we're dealing with large-scale surveillance of our communications, there's going to be a need for journalists to offer better and more secure channels than just sending an email, and even an encrypted email. And I think Secure Drop so far has proved to be a pretty successful solution to that problem. Yeah, and I think you very admirably go into great detail about the advantages of using a system like Secure Drop to really uh, secure those communications with your sources, to protect your sources, and hopefully do good journalism. Charles, thank you very much for uh, taking some time to talk to me on the phone about this. And people can find uh, your report on the Tau Center website? That's right, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Next time on It's All Journalism. Ukraine and India, India have both changed their laws around access to, to palliative care. And they said we had a role in that. I mean, that's incredible, you know, to feel that, that, that people actually have access to pain treatment now, you know, at the end of their lives, dying of painful bone cancer. And instead of screaming in agony, they're actually in comfort and they're, you know, they're, they're kind of ending, ending their lives in, in, in some semblance of peace because of a work of journalism you've done. I mean, to have that connection to, to a solution is, you know, more powerful and more valuable than, than any Pulitzer or Emmy or, you know, DuPont that we could ever win. Next episode, I talked to Peter Klein, director of the Global Reporting Center, about fostering global news coverage and solutions journalism. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. This week's podcast was produced by Michael O'Connell, Amber Healy, and Nicole Lagrisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.